Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch from OnScript. Biblical World is hosted by Chris McKinney, Lynn Koek, Kyle Keimer, Mark Jansen, Oliver Hersey, and Mary Buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is the third in our three-part look at the archaeology of Passion Week with Chris McKinney and Kyle Keimer. So if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, go back to episodes one and two in this series and you'll find out more. As with the others, uh, there are visuals that go along with this. They're on the website onscript.study forward slash biblical world if you want a downloadable PDF of some of the visuals that go with this episode. Since we're a new podcast, it would really help us if you could give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. Or if you want to help support Biblical World, you can go to onscript.study forward slash donate and you'll find information there. Thanks so much to Ed Hackey for producing this show and to Rebecca Terhune for marketing and media. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to OnScript, the Biblical World podcast. I am one of your hosts today, Chris McKinney, and I am joined by Kyle Keimer. Hello. And we are, hey, there's Kyle. And we are continuing our uh, look at the uh, archaeology of Passion Week. This is part three, the final part, we believe, uh, of this of this series, and uh, in some ways, the most exciting part, because we are uh, on our own kind of uh, podcast via Delarosa, uh, approaching the 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 final events of of Passion Week. And so we're really excited to delve into these these topics around uh, ancient Jerusalem, first century Jerusalem, and try to get back to what first century Jerusalem actually looked like when Jesus and the disciples, as well as the other followers of Jesus, uh, witness the events that that have shook the world ever since. Yeah, great, Chris. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I think this is you're right. This is the kind of culmination, the the perfect. Um, um, I yeah, culmination. I'll just repeat it again. Um, and it it is such an exciting one because I think you know there's um, if you go to Israel today in Jerusalem, you know one of the hot spots that most people visit is going to be the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And if you've ever gone there, you know it's the, one of the most confusing buildings in the entire world. And so we're going to try to unpack a bit of that and see how it might relate to the biblical events. Yeah, yeah. Church of the Holy Sepulchre has this real aura of, um, of, of past and present and uh, meeting in just this, this one large, complicated structure, um, and really maybe structure is not the best word for it. It's more like half of a city block of a hodgepodge of a variety of, of, of structures that are very, very interesting. Um, and, and for us, uh, fans of the the early explorers who, who came to Jerusalem in the, especially in the 19th century, and visited these holy sites, and were trying for the first time to make sense of, okay, where did these events actually transpire from a archaeological perspective, a scientific perspective? Um, like, for instance, Edward Robinson, the famous biblical geographer, he assumed that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre could not be the location of the tomb of Jesus because it was within the walls 
that he visited the walls of the modern uh, old city, or the, the old city that he knew and the old city that we know until today. And in fact, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is right dead center in the Christian quarter and almost right in the center of the old city today. And so what we would like to do is um, start with that kind of as a, as, as a premise with trying to understand why it's there uh, and also trying to understand um, what it might, why it might have been different in the, in the first century. But to set the stage, we've covered last time Jesus's trials before uh, Pontius Pilate and the Jewish Sanhedrin, which happened the night before, and with Pontius Pilate happened on uh, what is normally considered to be Friday morning. We suggested that the likely location, unlike the traditional location at the Antonia Fortress, was the Palace of Herod, which is just beside Jaffa Gate today for those coming into the old city of Jerusalem. Um, we argued from an archaeological perspective, historical perspective, that this would make the most sense. And so the route we're talking about now is going to proceed from the area of the Herodian Palace, again, near Jaffa Gate, and then continue uh, to either um, the area of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which Again, if you've been to the old city, it is not very far at all. Uh, or if you go with the alternate site of the garden tomb, be a, a much longer walk uh, all the way to the northern side, just outside the old city walls. And so we're going to make the case for one of these sites that we'll that we'll talk as we as we move through. Yeah, good, good, uh, good summary, Chris. And uh, yeah, I think uh, yeah, the best place to probably start then is is by turning back to the text. Um, to see what what they can uh, in, give us light uh, about, because as we we discussed last time, you know, in particular the Gospel of John has a lot of really interesting details that uh, specific details that we can kind of corroborate archaeologically, including the Lilithostratos and Gabbatha, and you know, so when we turn to the Gospels, you know, what kind of details do we have about where? where Jesus went after the trial. And unfortunately, we don't, we don't get a whole lot of details for, the, for this last stage. And so we really have to rely on the historical understanding, the historical topography of Jerusalem and what we see in the archaeology, because we know that he's brought outside the city and he's crucified. And really, I, I mean, maybe you want to go farther than that, but... It's, yeah, it's, I mean, I think that's, <laughs> I think that's it. Um, but it's important to also remember that there are two major later developments that change the layout of Jerusalem. Um, the first of those happens within a fairly short period of time after the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're talking about in the mid to early 60s AD, where we have the construction of what's called the Third Wall, uh, mentioned by Josephus, which which covers most of the uh, northern and uh, northwestern neighborhoods. It would have enclosed, for instance, the pools of uh, Bethesda uh, and really extending quite a distance away from um, the city and also actually would have enclosed the other alternate site, the Garden Tomb, in this. And uh, when it did so, uh, when, when that happened, it enclosed a number of uh, cemeteries from the, first, from the first century that previously, in the, the decades before, would not have been in the city proper. Now, just as, a, as an aside to this, we, it seems pretty obvious that in, in Jewish culture, 
uh, whether we're talking Old Testament Hebrew Bible or New Testament Second Temple period, that they did not bury inside of, of, of cities unless you were a king. Like, for instance, we have in the book of Kings, lots and lots of references to kings being buried in the city of David. But unless you were David or one of his offspring, and you had to be pretty good because some of them get excluded as well, um, they you were buried outside. And this was for ritual purification, and it was part of the culture in both the first temple period and the second temple period. And it's not just in Jerusalem. Um, we could make the case that even in a place like Nazareth, uh, they're able to essentially figure out how large the town of Nazareth is by tracing the uh, Herodian first century tombs that were around the site, which gives you an idea that you know they wouldn't have lived, uh, that the village wouldn't have been where there were tombs. And so in the case of Jerusalem, because you have a, a major development um, with the city really exploding in size and needing to um, fortify it, it's just kind of a really ironic that the both the area of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the area of the uh, Garden Tomb were, were encased in what became known as the Third Wall, which was very short-lived because it was destroyed in less than 10 years with the destruction which occurred in 70 AD. The second big shift, and we've alluded to this, is the, um, is the building of uh, Aelia Capitolina by Hadrian. And essentially, what this uh, what this did is it built a um, it built a street plan uh, where you have a cross. Now they weren't Christians yet uh, in the, in the Roman Empire, but you have a north south cardo, which is still in use today, in the middle and, and divides up the four quarters. That's the north south, and then you have an east west street called the Decumanus. Uh, which a few years ago, they actually found part of this street, which is directly due north of the Herodian Palace. And essentially, if you have two streets crossing, one going east-west and one going north-south, you have the four quarters of the modern uh, old city. And this basic plan continued all the way through uh, the Byzantine period and then later into the, uh, even until modern times, you can see this basic plan. And as it happens, the um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is almost located right in the center of this. And if you look at something like the Medaba map, which gives us a picture of Jerusalem in much detail in uh, the year 570 AD, we can see that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and its adjoining buildings was right in the center of uh, of Byzantine and probably reflecting also late Roman Jerusalem. But that was not the case uh, a generation earlier, or in, in the days of in the days of Jesus and the days of Herod, it's become very clear through archaeology that the area of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is just outside the second wall of Josephus, a wall which, uh, as we mentioned last time, connects the three big towers of um, the area of Herod's palace to the Antonia Fortress, uh, and the second wall. Uh, much like what we have with the third wall, was meant to enclose new neighborhoods and new um, areas of the city in a fortification and constructed in you know the decades before Jesus's, Jesus's life. And it's through one of these gates, the gate we haven't found yet, and maybe we, we won't, won't ever, uh, that Jesus would have likely uh, gone through if the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is right. And so all that is to say is that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the 
um, the area of the garden tomb are both uh, outside the walls or extramural, if you want to use a nice uh, archaeological term. Yeah, good point, Chris. And I'll just add a, a two things. Um, so on this second wall, you know, it unfortunately we don't have any good archaeological remains for it because you know the the challenge with Jerusalem is always it's a living city, and so you know you get snippets of its past here and there whenever renovations are done or or you know things have to be cleared out, and so we don't have a full picture. And unfortunately, the second wall is one of these these mysteries. But with that said, though, you know. I, we're fairly confident where the rough proximity of where it should have run. And again, there's, there's no doubt that the location of the Holy Sepulchre was outside of the city. And we know this from excavations in the church itself, in the Russian hospice um, next door, and also throughout the Muristan, which is the quarter that kind of is, is next to it, including the Church of the Redeemer. Uh, and if you go to, into the Church of the Redeemer today, number one, climb up the bell tower, you get this fantastic view over Jerusalem. Uh, number two, then go downstairs into the basement and you see the excavations there and you see that all the way back, it was a quarry. And this goes back to the Iron Age. It was a quarry up until probably at least the first century um, AD when the second wall was was built. And then after that, you see layers of fill that were kind of brought in to level off the area and to make it more habitable. And this seems to be the case you know, for the general, general region. So we know that this area is a, a giant place of uh, a giant quarry in the days of Jesus from the archaeology. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a really good point. And you know, one one aspect of that in terms of a quarry, if we think about the 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 function and purpose of quarrying out, obviously it's to build, and most people are immediately going to think of the building of the Temple Mount. Um, but it wasn't just the Temple Mount that was constructed in Jerusalem during the days uh, there in the days of Herod. We have, as we've said, the first wall, the second wall, and other building projects going on at the same time. But another thing that we can talk about in terms of a quarry is when you remove stone, it's not only for the for the positive benefit of uh, of making buildings. It also can have a defensive function, especially the the deeper you go in a quarry, it can essentially create a moat, which is what we think. Although, as as Kyle alluded to, it's it's a bit difficult because you're talking about a relatively small area that was exposed at the bottom of the church or the Redeemer, and and, and other places. So it's it's hard to know exactly how it would have worked. But the assumption is, and I think it's a, a really good assumption, that. Um, throughout Jerusalem's history, there was a need to protect the northern end of the city, and at various times, and Herod certainly uh, was one who did this, there was uh, intensive quarrying operations to not only get nice Lego pieces, uh, but also to, uh, to remove those large stones to create a, uh, an, artificial, an artificial moat. And that's what was likely there, and perhaps um, even Golgotha itself, um, in the area of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, uh, was a part of this quarrying operation that took place in this vicinity, which would have exposed and created cliff faces um, all around the uh, northwestern side of the city. And to add another uh, layer to this, um, probably... This was also the case in the area of the Garden Tomb. Uh, the assumption is, is that 
perhaps even um, going back into the Iron Age, although this is a, a bit debated, um, that the area of the cliff face where you have the so-called skull um, was part of quarrying operations, perhaps at cr meant to create a kind of boundary. And if you, if you travel along uh, the northern face of the old city walls, you know, from Damascus Gate, let's say, to the Stevens Gate or Lions Gate um, on the northeast side, you will see all throughout there exposed bedrock. In fact, there, the wall itself has been exposed. That wasn't done naturally. That was done artificially to, to create an artificial uh, barrier. And we think some of this was done in the Roman period, uh, but perhaps some of it was done earlier. Uh, but e even until today, when you drive around the northern part of the city, you're essentially driving through an artificial, uh, an artificial quarried out area. And one, one last thing. Uh, and, and part of that, it, which some people may recognize, is Zedekiah's Caves, which is a massive underground cavern where they removed large stones. But it was, it's, that's only one cave that you see. Everything else around it, we think, was where much of the stone was used at various times in Jerusalem's history. Yeah, yeah, good points, Chris. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's an important thing to point out because, you know, as archaeologists, we have to have a good imagination to be able to reconstruct how things looked. And for those who might not have as active an imagination as some of us do, you know, it's always nice to see something and to be able to, to visualize it. And so, as you mentioned, you know, along the northern face of, of the old city of Jerusalem, you have remnants of, of um, moats that have been cut at different times in between the Rockefeller and the northeastern corner of the old city and also along the northwestern corner too it gives you a really good visual sense of what this could have looked like you know because obviously if you go inside the city it's completely built up and so it's always nice to have at least in my mind it's always nice to have a visual representation to help conceptualize what it may have looked like yep agreed um so do we want to do we want to talk about the the garden tomb or, yeah let's talk about the garden tomb ahead. while we're let's here well yeah so so coming back to your point of you know it, basically in the first century both the location where the holy sepulcher is and the location where the garden tomb is would have been outside the city and this wasn't something that was known to early explorers in the 18th 19th centuries and this is one of the reasons that some of these early explorers came to Jerusalem and, and actually proposed the garden to him, in particular Gordon, right? The British general Gordon is the one who kind of proposed it. He said, you know, I went to the Holy Sepulchre and it's, number one, it's, it's just too gaudy. It's this Eastern Orthodox, you know, extravaganza of sights and smells and icons and you name it. And it's completely foreign to, you know, Protestant, you know, European, Western, even Roman Catholic type of Christianity. And I think there was a, a sense of, oh, I, I, I can't associate with this. I can't, I can't process this. It can't be the right place. Oh, also it's inside the city walls. Therefore it just can't be right. So we need to look outside and lo and behold, yeah, at the location of the garden tomb, you have this rock cliff face, as you mentioned, and it has what looks like two eyes and a mouth. So it kind of looks like a little skull. And so Gordon, you know, was seeing this and said, ah, this must be Golgotha, the place of the skull. And wouldn't you know it, there's a tomb right, right next to it. And he said, well, here we go. And you go into this tomb, which you can go into today. And on the right hand side is a, a bench tomb. And it, it seems to match up with some of the, the details in, in the gospels where it says, you know, you go into the tomb and Jesus was laid on the right hand side. And so he said, well, 
there we go. That's all the, the evidence that we need. This clearly is the place. It seems like you're setting up all this to sacrifice this sacred cow, Kyle. Uh, <laughs> Well, you know, we, we have learned a lot since, <laughs> since Gordon's days. And we, you know, we, we can never be too uh, critical of people, you know, for the lack of information that we now have. And so as archaeologists, I think it's an important thing to, to consider. And so we now know, unfortunately, that this tomb that, that Gordon identified as, as the tomb of Christ is an Iron Age tomb. And so if... If Gordon is right and that this is actually the tomb, then we run into an issue with the Gospels because the Gospels say that Jesus was laid in a freshly cut tomb. And so either we have to disallow for the accuracy of the details in the Gospel, or we have to accept that maybe we're not looking in the right place and we have to look someplace else. Yeah, I, to me, I think that is the the best answer uh, to why the garden tomb can't be the spot. And I would, what I always tell people when I visit the spot is we've already found it. Uh, you, you, like there's nothing um, better confirmed in terms of the tradition than the church of the Holy Sepulcher. We have, um, as we'll see, archeology span that supports this. We have tradition. It fits the gospels. Um, so why to look elsewhere when you found uh, when you found the spot and Kyle alluded to this uh, a minute ago when he talked about the uh, yeah the misconception to some extent of the, the problems with archaeology that um, people who thought that could be uh, we could understand why that might be because archaeology was in its infancy uh, and certainly I would not bes uh, besmirch the great name of Edward Robinson um, uh, but what the problem really comes to is that the Protestant community in Jerusalem, particularly the Anglican um, Protestant, which would be British in the, in the 19th century, did not have any space. They did not have a place that they could, uh, could build uh, church buildings. In fact, uh, if we think about the, the history of, of Palestine up till that point, there weren't any churches really constructed between the, really, you have two major periods of construction, the Byzantine period and the Crusader, which are long gap between those two. And then after the Crusader, something like uh, 1187, 1191 um, uh, AD, there's really no churches built until the modern era. And so in the, in the mid-19th century, you have this flourishing of possibilities towards the end of the Ottoman Empire of of the ability to build some of these churches and lay claim to uh, holy ground that that um, even even the, the 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 church communities that were there had not been able to to build on, and certainly the Protestant community had no access to. And so we should also understand the Garden Tomb not just as a incorrect um, archaeological location for the tomb of Jesus, but it, it has its own uh, history that is extremely significant within the last. A couple hundred years in, in Jerusalem's history. And really, when we think about the Garden Tomb or Gordon's Calvary, we should think about it with two main buildings in mind. Um, of course, there are two main areas in mind, the Garden Tomb itself and Christ Church, which is just inside uh, the area of Jaffa Gate, which became the first Protestant church uh, although it didn't start as a church, that's a whole other topic. Um, it was a private chapel uh, to be built, and they were built and, and purchased right around the same time. And just as Kyle indicated, part of that was not having a space, and another part is just the feeling of not belonging. 
when you're in the area of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which until today, every time I bring groups, everyone feels uh, that grew up in a um, non-denominational or denominational, um, whether we're talking about evangelical or just American um, Christianity of with no incense smells and um, not a lot of robes, um, and experiencing it and saying, this isn't what I imagine. But when you can go to the garden tomb, you get more or less what you were imagining. Uh, but the reality is, neither one of those places really is close to the sights and sounds of what would have would have looked like in the in 33 AD um, because the world has really changed obviously from a modern perspective and and the area of the church of the Holy Sepulchre has obviously changed because of the uh, because of the churches that were placed there and then some people will say well why do they build this huge ugly church which I don't that's, I'm not saying it's ugly but many people say that um, and they and then they say well had they not done that, we would have lost where the location was. And I, for one, over the years, have really come to appreciate the long and quite interesting history of the area of uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, another aspect Kyle mentioned about the Garden Tomb, uh, to, come, to circle back to this about it being a, uh, an earlier tomb— um, the area of the Garden Tomb is actually one of the most well-known Iron Age cemeteries in Jerusalem. Uh, just north of there, we have the Ecole Biblique, which is a, 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 a French school, archaeological, as well as biblical studies compound, has perhaps the best library in all of, um, for, sure, for sure, all of, of of, at least in the past, had the best library around, but it has um, also a series of Iron Age tombs, some of the best Iron Age tombs ever found, uh, including like underground four-room houses um, with repositories and uh, for, for bones, and it's, it's very close to this. And so the assumption is, made by Gabi Barkai and others, that the garden tomb is likely one of these Iron Age tombs that was uh, carved out in connection with this uh, with this cemetery, which is really interesting for um, for that period, and also tells us that the rock face that we have uh, there would have been like that, most likely during the Iron Age, during the time of uh, Hezekiah, Josiah, that time frame. We're talking about the eighth and the seventh century. So um, it's a great place to visit. It's a great place to have a spiritual experience, take communion, sing some songs. Um, and it's a, it's a wonderful place to have um, in the city, but it's almost assuredly, well, I should say, it's assuredly not the location of the uh, death and resurrection. Oh, and, and, and I know one, one last thing. The nose fell off also recently. Um, and, you know, it, the, you, we have documentation of what Golgotha, the so-called face skeletal um, uh, hill, would have looked like over the last um, hundred plus years, thanks to photography, and it has changed quite a lot over that time frame. And, who knows what it would have looked like for 1,800 years before that? <laughs> so, you know, we have all kinds of erosion. So it, to, to, to make a claim like that is, is pretty problematic in terms of just the, the way things erode in Jerusalem. And so uh, it, it, as nice as it is as a spot, um, it's, it, it doesn't really work. 
Yeah, and I'll add one kind of circumstantial um, element as well that will kind of transition us into some of the, the tradition that you mentioned, particularly about the, the location of the Holy Sepulchre, and that is, you know, the the Gospels tell us Jesus is crucified outside the city. And we know from Second Temple, um, you know, Josephus, and from classical sources that Romans typically liked to um, let people see these displays, uh, crucifixion, to remind them, you know, who was in control, what would happen if you broke the law, so on and so forth. And so we need to think about the the layout of Jerusalem in that time period. And even today, Jaffa Gate is the gate that leads the road off towards Jaffa. It's the main way to connect to the west uh, from Jerusalem. There is a road that extends out the north called Damascus Gate or or the um, Shechem Gate, as it was known previously. And the, the the location on a western, more westerly location, I should say, than the Garden Tomb makes more sense topographically for one of these displays of... of um, kind of the crucifixion and for where we know the main traffic was, was coming from in this time period. And so, you know, that, that's what I wanted to add. And it's a circumstantial thing that, you know, take it as it is, but it, it moves us then towards this tradition that you're mentioning. And again, we've talked multiple times about good traditions and other traditions. And unfortunately, the Garden Tomb you know, really doesn't have any tradition con- that has formed around it. And, and for the that in and of itself in Jerusalem is actually a major, major factor to consider against its historicity or against its location as the, the tomb of Jesus. Because, I mean, there are traditions about anything and everything in Jerusalem if it connects to the Bible, and yet this is a location that doesn't have any tradition. And so what does? Well, the place of the Holy Sepulcher. And if we start to dive into that tradition, right, we can go back you know, at least to the Byzantine period, right? If not even earlier, because we we have Eusebius telling us, right, in his kind of early church history, that Constantine, right, following the Council of Nicaea in the in the early fourth century, right, decides we're going to go back and we're going to find some places and we're going to commemorate the life of Jesus, and and then we get this long description about the first archaeological excavation in Jerusalem. And it's, it's the exposing of the, the tomb that seems to have been remembered. Now, where, where did this, right, is that as far back as we can go, or does it go even further? Well, actually, this tradition goes back even further, right? Because what they're tearing down and removing in order to get to this tomb is a Roman um, temple, esplanade, holy place of some sort that Hadrian erected in the second century. And this, at least in my mind, is one of the greatest strengths, you know, for the location of the Holy Sepulchre being the actual place of Jesus's crucifixion and burial, is that we have a tradition that goes back to really the the early second century, if not potentially even earlier, depending on when you want to date this potential graffiti that we have inside, which we can get to a little bit later. Most, I think, would date it a little bit later at this point. But... Anyway, the tradition is is very, very early, and it seems to match all the details we also have in the Gospels. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right on. And just to kind of give us a, a bigger picture of early versus late tradition, when we're talking about Helen, the mother of Constantine, building a church there, that's as early as it can get archaeologically, because these are the very first Byzantine churches that we have 
there's this one, there's the Church of the Nativity, and there's the Church uh, of the Ascension on the Mount of Olives. Uh, the other two are almost assuredly in the general right location, um, but as far as the tomb goes, there seems to be great cooperative evidence. Um, and just another thing to think about along those lines, you do have a gap between the, the death and the early the death and resurrection of Christ and the early church and, and the finding of these places before you start to have people go back and, and build uh, big structures over them. But that applies to all of, of Christianity and I would say even Old Testament sources. Uh, it's not until the Byzantine period that we start to see churches built in all these places. And that's why a place like the um, so-called prison church uh, that was found in the area of Megiddo is so interesting because it might date a hundred years before. We have someone saying that a Roman soldier there in the area of what um, is today called Lejeune or ancient Legio, uh, who how he had devoted this uh, money to this to this mosaic to to build this uh, to build this floor. That's a, a rare exception. Um, and so the fact that, as Kyle indicated, Eusebius gives us this necessary. Uh, background information about not only Helena, but also um, the, the the question of Hadrian building a... Why would he build a temple on this? Why, why yeah, choose big, this location? Yeah, that's the big question, exactly. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and and there's even a question of why, you know, whether or not he actually built a temple on the Temple Mount. Um, there's a big debate, as because we have some sources that say he did, and some sources that say he didn't. Archaeologically, we, we don't really know. But we, we do know that there was a temple built, and we're talking in the 130s, 100 years after the, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and in that next generation of uh, Christ followers who would have seen this and certainly uh, got the message that their, um, that, 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 that their, that their founder, you know, that their God was uh, having a, a pagan temple built over his, his tomb, and, and uh, they remembered, and then uh, once the, the church was constructed over that spot, um, obviously, all those things came together, and one one can just imagine, though, uh, what it must have been like to be in the footsteps of be, be, to be a Christian in in the days of Helena when she visited Jerusalem and is tearing down old temples to build a church over the location. Um, it's just it must have been so exciting and feeling like uh, what else is possible on the horizon? Um, you know, it's funny you mentioned Eusebius and reading through it. That is some of the most exciting, um, passionate stuff to to see how passionate they were about these locations and trying to get them right. Um, and so it's, it's fun to consider ourselves in that kind of same tradition of trying to get the right locations. Uh, we won't always get them right, but it's important to really try um, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And we have to use whatever sources are available to us. We can't just neglect a source because maybe we don't agree with it or don't think about it. And so again, when we, you know, for the tradition of this location, you know, we're looking at classical sources, we're looking at early church fathers, we're looking at the archaeology, we're considering the topography, we're looking at, um, did I say archaeology? Archaeology. We'll say it again. Yeah. And, you know, and the, the, one of the things that is really exciting, I think, for me is when, not only when you go into the Holy Sepulcher, but when you go next door into the Russian compound, because you actually see um, the some monumental stairs and part of a, a triumphal arch that probably is associated with this earlier 
Hadrianic structure, and, and I think there's a when we can't date it precisely whether or not it is actually that earlier, or we should actually associate it with the Constantinian construction later on. It, it's this fantastic exposure that you're not going to get inside the Holy Sepulchre because it's been destroyed and renovated so many times. But this eastern facade is is still nicely preserved. So that's my little plug to go in there if you want again to get a sense of what it could have looked like or part a part of it would have looked like in the earliest stages of its evolution as as a location and no, sorry i'll stop and if you want to add any other thing chris i i'll no, jump into go ahead. something yeah i, I think okay. i think you're exactly right i mean i i think that going into these to these different stations of the cross and, and as well as seeing that i mean it's so interesting and what's great is you can add the picture of the Medaba map of Jerusalem from that from that time, and you're actually seeing the facade that would have been part of the the Church of the Holy Sepulchre uh, for much of its early history. And there's just something really exciting to that to to imagine yourself going back to that time frame and then putting yourself into the mindset of those who are coming up to the church to remember. Um, now, to, to just add on to uh, what Kyle said, a lot of the history of the church is problematic, um, but that shouldn't uh, that shouldn't cause us to not look closely at the archaeology and history. For instance, the Crusades. The Crusades were definitely, if you read the Crusader sources, they what was driving them is that they did not have access to the tomb that they wanted to have access, they wanted to reclaim the holy sites, and specifically the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Um, and that's why when you visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre today, you see the arches in the front. This is where the Crusader kings buried um, their, their, uh, buried their, their, their kings and others around there. And so as problematic as the Crusades are, and I know there's a lot of discussion as to how we should understand them, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is part and parcel of that whole uh, that whole movement, and to maybe transition some and think about archaeologically as to why the Crusades happened and uh, how that impacts the archaeology, they are going to build on to many of the Byzantine structures and other things that were built earlier on. But what ultimately drove them were really two things: the encroachment of the um, of, of the the Ottoman the, the Ottoman the 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 Muslim uh, forces in the area of Constantinople, but also um, about a hundred years before this, the knocking down of the previously standing tomb, um, presumably the entire thing, by a caliph named Al Hakim. Uh, that that essentially really uh, created major tensions between the Christian community living in Jerusalem and the Islamic community living in Jerusalem. Now, the important thing is, is of course, that led to aspects of the Crusades, but archaeologically speaking, the real question has been for a long time that what you see over the so-called tomb of Jesus, uh, called the Edicule, what's under there? You know, what what do we have uh, in terms of evidence, and that's why just a, a few years ago it was very exciting uh, when they finally uh, decided to uh, to look behind the you know the, the later structure and see what was ultimately there. Yeah, yeah. Well, they uh, good point. They had to renovate, so the edicule basically had for so this this brings us into a, a little discussion of of the nature of the Holy Sepulchre and those inhabiting it or res, or having space there and. 
um, I think as, as we've mentioned, you know, as, as Chris, I think really articulately said, you know, the Protestants didn't have a place there leading, you know, even up till today. And, but who, who is in there? Well, you've got the Eastern Orthodox, you've got Syriac tradition, you've got Roman Catholics do have a place in there. You've got the Ethiopic um, church as well, Armenian as well. And unfortunately, none of them Ar- Armenian, but no Calvinists. Wait, those are two different things. <laughs> Armenian, not Arminian. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and it's unfortunate that most of these groups just don't see eye to eye. And there's something called the status quo, that they've basically gotten to a point where they will cohabitate and agree to disagree about pretty much everything, as long as it means that they maintain their status in the, the Holy Sepulchre or for the Ethiopic Church next to it. Right? And so to be able to actually go in and even renovate the edicule, which was crumbling and could have easily collapsed, it basically it was that dire, um, even despite having been reinforced, um, uh, when did they, I forget, they reinforced it back in the 50s or something. And yeah. It's, it's been reinforced for and a ugly. while. And ugly, like there was, yeah, just you know, giant it was steel. starting to rust and mm-hmm. it was really, it was not a pretty sight on the outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so all these groups got together, the Greek patriarch and, and the others, the other leaders of the churches all got together and were swayed by the kind of historians, archaeologists, architectural historians that something needs to be done now or the risk of losing this thing, this this you know, beacon of, of Christian pilgrimage for the last 2,000 years almost is going to be gone. And so they all agreed, said, yes, we're going to do it. And the uh, a team from Greece uh, was able to come in and do work and they basically closed it down for a brief amount of time, and what they found was was incredible, right? And, and as you said, Chris, you know, archaeologically speaking, you know, what do we have from the actual tomb? Well, maybe maybe it's better to step back for just a moment before we kind of pick back up with this and say, if we go back even earlier to our earliest strata, kind of archaeologically speaking, we have a number of first century tombs inside the Holy Sepulchre, in the grounds. There's another one called the so-called Tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, which is just kind of behind the, uh, or I should say, west of the rotunda, if you go into the Holy Sepulchre. And there's a couple more to the northeastern uh, area as well. And so we know that there are at least Jewish tombs from the first century in this location. So it stands to reason that Jesus could have been buried there, that there could be a tomb under the edicule as it stands today. And so there's good reason to, you know, again, tradition and then, you know, the archaeology is starting to add to that. Yeah, and I would, I would just add to what you're saying is that for many, many years, that was the best evidence we had. And it's really good evidence that you have early Roman um, shafts or, or, you know, the, the, the benches and then shafts cut into the, 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 the bedrock that were for the laying out for primary burial. Maybe we should just say a couple things about that. That uh, when, when someone died, uh, if they had the, um, you know, enough wealth and prestige, uh, depending on their, their living situation, they were placed in a rock-cut tomb. And in the rock-cut tomb, their flesh and inner organs and all those aspects uh, through a process of wrapping with linen, as well as the use of perfumes and ointments, uh, would decay. And over the course of a year, um, after their, their, their year or so, after their skeletal remains had lost all of the, the flesh, the bones would be collected and placed into a bone box, which is what we call an ossuary. And so I always like to say, really the ultimate question is not whether this is the place or not, but whether or not Jesus made it to an ossuary. Um, so, but, but we do know that there were these tombs in the vicinity 
which is strong corroborating evidence as this is the as a, a location for a Jewish burial ground of some means because of the reference to Joseph of Arimathea, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin uh, that is mentioned in the Gospels. Yeah. Yeah. So if we're kind of tallying up our, our, our evidence for, you know, why this might be the location, well, we know it was a quarry early on. It's outside the city. It's on the main thoroughfare into Jerusalem, which would comport nicely with what we know about where Romans like to crucify people. We've got tombs dating from the right period that, again, are cut into the quarry because, hey, why not? The, it's a perfect face. We can cut right into it, and, and there we go. And so we're, we're adding, again, no smoking gun, Nothing that says you know Jesus was here, but let's start. Let's keep let's keep going on here with our our stuff. But Kyle, but Kyle, let me, let, let's just say add one thing because I think one one thing I always experience when I'm in that when I come in through those doors and it's such blinding light off shining off a limestone and you see just the um, all the mass of humanity going on there and you're you, on your right. What do you see? You see the you see the Chapel of Adam. Uh, which is, of course, theologically connected with Romans and Corinthians, and the idea of the first Adam in, in Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, but that is thought to be also on the top of that, the chapel of Golgotha, you know, the location of the crucifixion. Um, and then just a, a less than a Tom Brady throw away, uh, you have the edicule. I mean, really, I could probably hit it with a baseball. Uh, it's, it's, it's very close to this location. And many people are, are very skeptical, and they say, how come um, in the same big structure you have these two holy sites? Because really, it is. It, it's a it's a crucifixion site, and it is a uh, it is a tomb. So what what evidence do we have that um, that that seems to fit that? I mean, is 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 it is it one or the other? Uh, is one right and the other wrong? Uh, anyway, I'm setting you up. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. There's no. Uh, gosh, if I had a good, easy answer for that, I would. I would give it to everybody right now. But you know, so this is the challenge. So yeah, if you if you go to the right, once you go in, you you climb up this super steep staircase to get up to the kind of chapel of Golgotha, and you go in, and again for a kind of non-Eastern. Christian, it's going to be a sight and smell explosion, just to give you a sense if you've never been there before. And at the front, right, you you have this kind of altar, and you can actually go down b below it and reach down into a hole and feel the bedrock. And there's, there's actually, it's in, encased in glass, and it's an actual bedrock kind of cliff spire, you know, outcrop, if you will, that rises up about, uh, what, four or five meters, so four or five yards from the, the ground level. And this would, you know, for all intents and purposes, be a good, nice, visible place to put across and say, hey, everybody, look up there, see, see what happens if you don't listen to Rome. And interestingly, when you reach into the, the hole under the altar there, you feel this rectangle cut into the bedrock. And the tradition is that this is where Jesus's cross was inserted into the bedrock when he was crucified. Now, I wish I could just stop there, but it's not, it's not quite so easy because when some excavations were done uh, back in, uh, I want to say the 90s maybe or so, uh, Shimon Gibson, again, who we mentioned in the past, has done some work in the Holy Sepulcher. And they were actually allowed to look behind some of what you can't see of this. And they, they argue that actually what has been traditionally identified as Golgotha is, is too small of a, a space to house three crosses, which, again, if we're accepting the Gospels' um, details, we know that the, Jesus is crucified with two others in this location. And so 
if the size of the rock outcrop isn't big enough to hold these three, then it might not actually be the location. But it's not to say that, there, that, that this is the only place, right? Again, what we know of the rest of the bedrock, a kind of rim of this quarry, we don't really know much. I mean, it's I, I've never seen anything written about or any explorers talking about this, you know, through the happenstance of of you know history and construction and destruction it could be that we you know that there were additional kind of um pits or, or holes cut into the bedrock so that you know this was this was the place that the romans lined people people up you know that's we, we don't know precisely but we do have to factor in you know gibson and joan taylor as well worked with him on this the, you know their their interpretation of this the space and whether or not it is in fact big enough yeah i think all those are, are like really legit conversations to have in terms of this area. And, and to me, I think one of the big takeaways is quarries often are, you know, for the quarries by nature are for removing rock. So there's no reason to say that after the death of Jesus, um, after the death of resurrection Jesus, that there wouldn't be more removal even in the early Roman period. And with the building of various uh, structures in the Church of Holy Sepulchre's long and complicated history, it's certainly possible that much of what was there was quarried away. Um, I actually just wanted to point our listeners to a film that came out a couple of years ago, a film called uh, Risen, uh, that I was actually, I wasn't impressed by it. everything that happened in the film. I, that was, it was, I actually, I think, probably the best depiction of the crucifixion because it actually tried to take into account the idea of this being an area of a, of a quarry and also showing the location nearby of, of, of a tomb. And uh, to, to answer, uh, I kind of set up the, the question of how come they're so close. Actually, John tells us they are. And I, I would just like to read uh, John 19, uh, 40 through 42. It says, So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloth with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, uh, which is where we get the garden tomb, although unlikely what we think of when we think of a nice English garden. Well, here is probably an orchard or, uh, you know, for, for olive trees or a vineyard or that type of thing. And in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. This is, of course, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Then we get the, the line that's very important. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, that they laid Jesus there. In other words, they buried Jesus close to the crucifixion site because the Passover was about to begin. And so we have embedded in uh, the Gospel of John a very close um, indicator that these places, the place of crucifixion and the place of burial, were very close to one another. Which, and, and yet everything that we've said is, is, is true and accurate in the sense that it was a place that was likely near the city, uh, that was a place to mark the death of criminals. Um, and if we, if we use the combined evidence, it's possible that there were already the vertical, um, the, the vertical part of the cross already sitting there um, that, was, you know, that could be taken out of the ground and reused. Um, and, and so there's a variety of different ways we can understand that. But in that same context, you have a cemetery, not just any cemetery, but a cemetery for a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin and also a garden. And so even though when we're in the 
um, you know, the space of the Church of Holy Sepulchre, which creates a common floor and a common, a common atmosphere, the space as it would have been in the first century apparently was very different, where you have fortification wall, street, execution of, of criminals, perhaps a kind of hedge with uh, an orchard or uh, a vineyard. And in that vineyard, you have the area of the um, you have the area of the the, the, the tombs that we that we've just outlined, and so that seems to to match quite uh, quite well. Um, and so again, all of these pieces seem to fit. Now another aspect of this, um, because we often want to imagine uh, the crucifixion happening on top of a hill. Now there's actually nothing in the um, there's nothing in the text other than the, the song, On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, um, but there's nothing in any of the text that indicates it actually happens on top of a hill, although that was, I guess, certainly possible. Um, but the indications we have from the gospel almost indicate a kind of uh, one-to-one communication uh, with uh, with the, the, the people that could have derided them. And if we compare... Uh, even if we think of, of, of course, with Roman uh, crucifixion practices, we could go back to even Assyrian practices of uh, piercing and lifting up of dead corpses. It's, it's, it's not just simply meant to be something that is a symbol up on a hill. It's meant to have this personal and very visceral uh, connection with the people on that, that are passing by so that they see close up what it means to defy, uh, to defy Rome. And so whether we're talking about on top of this quarry uh, of Golgotha, or we're talking about in front of the uh, quarry of, of Golgotha, either one of these, uh, either one of these uh, work. Now, um, I would like to just riff on this for uh, just a minute, because from a theological slash geographical perspective, um, and here we're, we're both smiling a bit because I, uh, our friend um, and uh, fellow historical geographer John Monson uh, was, was recently sharing with us uh, the idea that um, really the crucifixion site, um, yeah, we, we know where it is, the Church of the Holy makes the most sense, but if we're thinking about the place where a sacrifice would be offered, uh, a place where um, so much of the history of Jerusalem transpires, uh, it's the big T, you know, it's, it's the temple, right? It, it's the place where Jesus had been active so much. And of course, it is the area that we connect, of course, to the, the, um, the story of, of Abraham and Isaac, uh, specifically connected that with Chronicles, where, you know, Solomon builds the temple on Mount Moriah, it says in Chronicles. So theologically, as well as geographically, you connect these, uh, you connect these two. And also, if we, if we think of, especially the Synoptic Gospels, in the case of, of Matthew, uh, it goes out of its way to say, upon the death of Jesus, we have the curtain torn in two, and we have things going on in the temple. Uh, how does he know? How, how, does, how does he, well, maybe people told him, or you know, this was well known, uh, but I think what John uh, Monson indicates is really rather interesting, because if we think of the topography of where they are in terms of um, uh, of the western side of the city, which is a high hill, and you're looking at the face of the second wall, and you look across, uh, we look across to uh, the area of the temple, um, and you could see the, the temple in the same background. So if you're, if you're looking from the west 
at the crucifixion site, which imagine, you know, visiting Jerusalem at many times afterwards, what you ha- would have in the foreground is the place of the tomb, the place of Golgotha, the, the, the city walls of, of Herod. And then in the background, you see the massive mount that Herod built and maybe peeking just over the top, the gold glittering, not dome as we see today, the Dome of the Rock, but the gold of the temple. And so from a, from a perspective of a visitor, seeing that and seeing that as Hebrews says, that Jesus dies outside of the camp, so you can connect that typologically as well. You also have the idea of, uh, of, of Jesus being connected with the Isaac sacrifice, as well as uh, the Passover lamb, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, and John clearly is indicating, as he says, not one uh, bone is broken. And so all of those seem like theological points, and they are, but the key point is where this happens in relationship to the sights and sounds of first century Jerusalem that create this environment of, of, of how those were, were, were receiving it at the time it happened, but also as they ruminated on it uh, for, for year, the years afterward, thinking about the implications. And as we get those things, especially the idea of, of the curtain being torn in, the two, in, in two in, in the temple, uh, you know, the idea of the God's presence leaving the Holy of Holies. And so I just think that's a fantastic idea. Uh, John was sharing with this with us, and I, I think it's just a, a great way to think about how, um, you know, the, the sights and sounds of, of Passion Week really impacted that first generation of those who would believe in Jesus. Hmm. Yeah, great, great point, Chris. And, and you know, I think I just the thing I'll add is if you actually go below the chapel of Golgotha into the the other chapel underneath, you actually see more of the bedrock. It's it's kind of encased and then outside in the hallway as well. And so you see more of the actual bedrock of of Golgotha. And directly below where the this cross or this cutting in the rock is, you have this giant crack in the stone. And this comes to again what you're talking about with not only is the curtain torn in the temple, but according to the gospels, it says there's a major earthquake and rocks were split. And you know, whether or not, again, this is this is the the true Golgotha. I mean, again, it's it's in this vicinity. There's probably there's this most likely reality is it's in this vicinity. Whether or not this is actually the one or not, the fact that you have this giant crack directly below it is is quite fascinating. And you know, I think it's it's another one of these visual things that connects you back. And so you're 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 making you know John's making this fantastic point of you know processing and and having this visual thing and kind of pulling things together. Well, when you go to the Holy Sepulchre today, right? This is I think one of those instances where you you can do that. You see the the crack. You think about the gospel account. You think about the changes that have taken place uh, according to the gospels because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And it just be kind of it becomes a real um, reality in, in the way that you're experiencing it. Yeah, and I, I think that's exactly right. And it, what's so exciting about it is it's, as we've alluded to, there's a variety of lenses to see this through. And the ones, and they all have their own um, levels of legitimacy and so on. I mean, the, the part that we're talking about is called the, the Chapel of, of Adam. And so tradition says that Adam is buried under there and the blood is connected with, you know, the, the second Adam and the first Adam. Now, theologically, that makes sense, but whether or not Adam was buried in this vicinity or if there's any other tradition other than built upon the tradition of, of the church 
is, is hard to say with any certainty and probably is unlikely, but it's a tradition that links those theological ideas. But what we're indicating is we think that through the text and through the archaeology and through the geography of the gospel sources, we can get much closer to what the sights and sounds would have looked like in those days and to indicate even the earthquake. And then once you connect the earthquake with what is around the tomb, uh, as we've indicated, there are tombs, plural. Um, And that, to me, is a very interesting part of this, because if we continue on in the following verses in Matthew 27, verses 52 and 53, we read that the tombs were opened as a result of the earthquake. And as soon as Jesus arose on that Sunday morning, up the saints or the holy ones also arose and went into the city. Now, whatever you think of that passage, which is among the most controversial passages in the Gospels, um, whatever you think of that passage, maybe we won't um, give our take on it, uh, but it, it has to be considered that the tombs that are um, in the area must be taken into account because likely these are the ones that are being alluded to by Matthew, that they're, they're places that are in the vicinity that also experienced a resurrection uh, as a result of the resurrection of Jesus. That seems to be the best way of reading it um, to, to understand. And so, again, by going into these little nooks and crannies of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, looking at a panel of glass here of bedrock and looking at a crack, or looking into uh, the various chapels in and around, you get a much better sense of what that first century um, build or that first century sights and sounds and archaeology uh, would have would have uh, would have been like that's really reflected I would say in the uh, in the Gospels particularly John and Matthew which add additional elements that are not always seen in, in, in Mark and Luke. Well, let's let's shift over then and talk about these these tombs. Well, let's talk about the eticule, the the so-called tomb of Jesus, and you know we'll come back to this. So we had already talked a bit about it, and you know the fact that there's this built structure over top of what tradition says is the original rock-cut tomb that goes back you know to the days of Jesus, and this whole. Um, area, this whole tomb has its own fascinating history and, and it's been reconstructed in different ways. But basically what we can kind of estimate based on the the stone and the, the topography and everything that we do know is that right the stone face, you know, basically if you're inside the rotunda, most of that would have been bedrock in the days of Jesus. And after that it was quarried away, leveled off when Hadrian built his 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 temple. And then once Constantine came and removed that temple, tore it down and excavated down to presumably the earlier level, he would have found the tomb and it was basically cut out in a negative. So basically he left a giant cube of bedrock with the tomb inside of it and removed the remainder of uh, the, the wall of bedrock uh, back to, to open the space up. Now, this is fortunate. He didn't go so far that he removed the, that tomb of Joseph Arimathea, so it's preserved for us, so we know, you know, he, it's like, as if he said, ah, you know, we'll leave this for later archaeologists so they know that there was a first century, you know, kind of burials here. And, and to add to this, I mean, that's really important because likely there were other tombs beside it and perhaps even areas for ossuaries and all the other things, but what was selective was this particular niche in this tomb. And so that's, that's a really important point that 
uh, that Kyle makes. I mean, it's it's really crucial that this particular one was selected and everything else was removed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, again, this is, you know, giving us a good connection that you know, there's something special about this one specific tomb, this one. And when you go into it, right, you, you dip low underneath the, the lintel um, to kind of get you into an appropriate kind of lower bowing, humble stance, right? You come into the chapel of the angel, right? And it's interesting if you've ever been in there, or perhaps if you've never been there, there's, there's a kind of pedestal right in the middle uh, that you should really pay attention to because it's, according to tradition, this is the actual um, door of the tomb that basically was blown out when, when the angels came and when, you know, Jesus, Jesus left the tomb. And I'll come back to it in a second because it's, it's an interesting doorway, but you proceed into the second chamber and lo and behold, you have uh, a small chamber with a bench tomb on the right. And okay, so now we're coming back to what we were talking about before when they came to renovate this, one of the questions was, okay, is there an actual rock cut tomb underneath the, the kind of built facade that you see today? Yeah, so just, just to highlight for our listeners, what we had, what you see in there, even until today, but up until recently, was a was a faux tomb. It was a recreation mm. of the bench. So go ahead, go ahead, Kyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's completely cased in marble today, um, and you know the tradition, or at least one of the, the theories I heard, is that because you know the church fathers very early on realized that pilgrims were coming, and they you know, and if you go to any area in the church, you'll find pilgrims etch crosses into the walls or little graffiti. And they sometimes back in the Byzantine would take the filings with them and they had took on this kind of medicinal purpose. And so, the, you know, you don't want people coming into the tomb of Jesus and scratching it away because eventually it's going to be gone. And so it's encased in marble. So it's, it's protected. And we don't have any historical sources that talk about this actual encasing or if it's ever been removed or renovated or anything like that. And so it was really an opportunity when the renovations were being done to open it up and to see, okay, what's, what's actually in there? And did anything survive? I mean, so the, the oldest source we have, right, that mentions, or I should say the, the one that's most recent is the one from um, the 11th century AD of Al-Hakim kind of coming in to destroy it and having, having his men chisel it away to, to destroy it and wipe it out of, out of this place. We, we do know that they weren't successful in removing all of it because he, he died. I forget if he was assassinated actually. Um, and the, you know, things basically, then the next Caliph came in and reestablished better connections with the Christian community. They were allowed to re rebuild the church and to, you know, fix it. And so the, the tomb was no longer under immediate threat, but we don't know how much was actually removed. So when they came in to, to do the renovations of the, um, the edicule, they did ground penetrating radar through the sides and they actually even lifted up the marble casing of the tomb to see what was underneath. And lo and behold, there is still standing, and actually you can even see this today. If you go into the tomb, there's some channels that run off to the left-hand side as you enter the tomb. You can see the bedrock still in between the, the stone facade of the edicule. And they found that there are two vertical walls on the, the kind of south and the north, along with a stone bench that is preserved underneath of all of this, this facade. And you know, when they removed the casing over the, um, the, the bench tomb itself, they found an earlier slab of marble with a cross on it. And 
radiocarbon dating has shown that this actually goes back to the 4th century AD. So this is apparently a Constantinian, or very shortly thereafter, kind of, you know, construction over top the stone-cut tomb that was still standing there um, as a way of kind of mar marking this location. So again, the fact that you have this, you know, Constantinian-era slab stuck right to the bedrock is another one of these these tradition markers that gets us you know closer back and just adds weight to the argument that this is the location yeah i it's so exciting i mean the fact that this happened in our lifetime is just a really incredible thing i mean it's one of those things that you say well i wish they would do this like we talked about earlier with the Siloam pool but the fact that this happened is I mean it's it's more fantastic than a plot from Indiana Jones. I mean Henry Jones Jr. Uh, never got to find or experience an excavation quite like this. Um, and the what's so what's so fascinating is the the theories that had long been held were essentially all confirmed by the excavations and with the radiocarbon dating and uh, and again you, nothing there that says first century uh, in terms of a radiocarbon date because nothing's you know none of that would be able to give you that but the the the, the tomb itself and the fourth century uh, construction just absolutely incredible to be able to to excavate that and really confirm the history of, of Eusebius that he gives us and uh, actually give us the most likely location uh, for the tomb and so I, I really think that I mean, tradition and these questions of identification are always, uh, I have a question mark, but I mean, this is as much of a slam dunk as it gets in terms of being the location of the tomb. And I think if people were more aware of just how exciting all of the tradition and background is, uh, particularly in Protestant circles that love um, the garden tomb, they would be much more inclined to see the value as well as see the historical background of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which uh, seems to check all the boxes and then some for for being the location. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let me let me come back to this um, little kind of pedestal thing. As I mentioned, the, the supposed door to the tomb, because there's a couple really interesting things about this. That you know, when we think of the tomb of Jesus, and or we read the gospel stories, and it says, you know, then they rolled the tomb or rolled the door in front of the tomb, and then or the angel rolled the door away. What do we think? Well, we think, at least I always would think, oh, it's a round stone that they roll in front of the door. And we actually know that there are round stones. If you go outside of Jerusalem, there are some large uh, tombs, the kind of so-called tomb of, of um, oh gosh, uh, Herod, uh, Herod's family. Herod, yeah. yeah, Herod's family. There we go. Um, and it has, you know, a giant rolling stone cut into a groove that will you could roll in front of the door. And a similar kind of thing probably or potentially may have existed even at the garden tomb. And so you say, ah, oh, well, there you go. That's what it that it is. But if you actually look at the weight of the the evidence from tombs in around Jerusalem from the first century, they typically have square doors and square entrances. And the doorway that you see in the chapel of the angel as you go into the, the inner eticule room is a square chunk of limestone. And it, it really fits better with first century Jewish burial practices in the Jerusalem region in particular than anything else. And we have to remember too, look at the size of it. Right? The, the doorway 
actually leading in would have been about half the size even of what you go through today because right, the, the, they're just generally small. And the Gospels tell us that when Peter got there, right, he crouched down and climbed in to see. So it's not that he could just walk straight in. He had to get down and to actually get into the tomb and see it. And so, again, there's nothing on the, this little doorway thing that says this is the door to the tomb of Jesus. You found it. But fitting within the broader picture, archaeologically, what we know of tombs, burial practices, Jerusalem region, it all makes really good sense and brings us back to that first century time period. Yeah, it's so cool. It's, yeah. it's just, I mean, it's, it, it, that's the thing about it is we've been there. I mean, I've been there a hundred times. I mean, I, so many times. I know, Kyle, you've been there, but 101 the, times, actually. 101 been, times, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> it, it, you've been there so many times, and it, it yet experiencing all these things and the excitement and the uh, the archaeology and the tradition and, and all those things coming together, and, and you're standing there experiencing it as part of it. And, and to ha- have these types of things happen in our lifetime um, and to make these, you know, these archaeological connections. And then as we think about uh, how this is until today, you know, talked about in the church. I mean, every, every uh, Easter we're, you know, going through these, uh, going through these texts again. Uh, it just makes it, I, I think, not make it more real, even more realistic, but it just gives us the, the sights and sounds of these events that, that, that took place and uh, adds a whole other layer to this, uh, to this discussion of the archaeology mm. of Passion Week. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's see. I'm just I'm looking at a few images here to see if there's anything else I want to talk about. But if you if you see the video version, there are some some images that you can you can play and display and see the progression and um, development of of the region. And particularly if you've never been there and want a better better sense. But so yeah, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, and we'll, and we'll post some links to the the National Geographic. Uh, they did a, an excellent job with some beautiful illustrations showing the the wonderful work they did there. And there's some great videos online that uh, that illustrate these um, that illustrate the development of of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre uh, through time. And so uh, we hope that with our our discussion of it and our interest in it, um, in addition to these resources, people will be made more aware of. Uh, all the wonderful things that um, can be said about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, its background, that are often missed either by uh, following after a tradition that we don't think is as uh, as, as useful, or um, just simply because they're, they're not aware of the archaeology and the, and the tradition and the history that goes into the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, which I, I would say just as, a, as we move towards the end of this, this series, which has been fun uh, to go through all of, of Passion Week and talk hey, about Chris, specifically. Chris, before you wrap up, let me just add yep. one last thing with the Holy Sepulchre again. Yeah, go ahead. So even when you go in there, again, it's, you know, if you know what you're looking for, you actually will also see not only some of the original Constantinian construction, which is most of the rotunda itself and other portions, but you'll actually see some of the uh, Hadrianic construction as well. So again, you know, it's just, it's a, a, I don't know, visual architectural experience to be in this building, particularly if you know what you're looking for. So I would recommend taking a good, um, a good guide or a good book with you to kind of get that if, if you're particularly interested in seeing some of the, the layers and how the tradition has built and is still captured in what you can see today. Agree. Yeah, that, I think that that, that in between tradition is is really the the mesh that ties all this together. The the the, the tradition between the archaeology of the first century and when we get to the fourth century with with Helena uh, building the church, and, and the fact that we have this pagan temple 
um, and, and being able to, to see it and touch those those elements is just really uh, fascinating. And uh, just as we as we conclude uh, this series, I would just add that I often hear, and, and I think it's mostly true, the idea that it doesn't matter where it happens, it matters that it happened, and in, in the theological implications of the death, burial, and resurrection uh, of Jesus obviously have a huge impact upon uh, upon Christianity um, and those who who believe in you know the, the resurrection of Jesus. Um, but there's a sense in which it really does matter where it happened, and the reason why I'd say that is because it happens in space and time, and it was important for the early church to confirm and think of this location, and it was important for the gospel writers to tell us exactly, exactly, I mean, more or less, where this was. I mean, it's, it's close to this place called Golgotha that people knew. It's close uh, to an orchard. It's, it's, it's near the place and tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Important figures. I mean, if you lived in the first century, you would likely know where these figures were, um, that had their 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 tombs and their orchards that as you pass through the city uh, of course they not knowing that the um, city of Jerusalem would be destroyed in 70 AD and totally change uh, our perception of it 2,000 years and, and again just to highlight this being able in 2021 to uh, and, and just a few years ago when it was exposed to be able to recreate that world in a way that, uh, Martin Luther, Calvin, even to some extent Eusebius, was not able to do because of the lack of archaeology, the lack of ability to connect to other sources. To be able to put all that together um, is really exciting. Um, and it's not to say that we look down our nose at past people because of the lack of ability, but I just think it's a real privilege to to be alive when we are, to understand the intricacies of, of, of the text and archaeology and these sights and sounds uh, that are, are not just connected with this one event, but are connected with all aspects of the biblical story, uh, which to me is, is really at the heart of what I, uh, of what I love about uh, being a, an archaeologist and being a scholar interested in the historical, cultural, and archaeological background of the biblical world, which is what this podcast is all about, right? Um, so we, we thank you, uh, Kyle. Do you have? I don't want to. If you have anything to add, no, no, that was, that okay. was good. Uh, okay, uh, we, we want to thank you for tuning in to our uh, three-part series, and uh, hopefully we'll have uh, an addition additional ones in the future where we'll have guests on diving into some of these questions. Uh, but we hope you enjoyed this, and we'll catch you next time. You've been listening to On Script's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study donate. Until next time, keep digging.